Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. What a busy week. But then again, you'd expect the week before the championship games to be very busy. Sorry for the podcast being a day late, uh, a little more than a day late. Honestly, I had the chance to get Arthur Smith, the new coach of the Atlanta Falcons, early on Thursday morning. So we're going to take that chance. So I decided to delay the podcast. My apologies uh, if it inconvenienced you. And uh, it's a little bit too late for you. But anyway, my guest this week, the new coach of the Atlanta Falcons, Arthur Smith, and Jarrett Bell, longtime NFL writer for USA Today. We're going to go over some. Um, uh, we had an eight-hour and 43-minute uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame selection meeting on Tuesday of this week. Um, this year, it was done by Zoom, as so many things in our society have been done. Uh, and so basically, we uh, that took up the whole day. It was just a little past dawn when I went into my little cave in Brooklyn, New York. And then I got out and breathed deep and I looked at its dusk and I said, what happened to Tuesday? But anyway, I'll get into that a little bit with, uh, with Jared Bell. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Deshaun Watson. So um, first, I want to talk about the two things that, uh, you know, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the end of Philip Rivers' career, and I'll also talk about the, uh, the two championship games coming up. A couple of thoughts on Rivers. So there's going to be tremendous debate about whether Philip Rivers should make the Hall of Fame <laughs> or should not. Um, and a long time ago, Paul Zimmerman, the the late Sports Illustrated writer and a guy who taught me so much about not only football, but about covering football. He used to say to me when we were sitting in Hall of Fame meetings, he used to get so exasperated when people would be quoting stats and all this. And he would say, Lord, did you watch the games? What did your eyes tell you? Is he a Hall of Famer? And look, Philip Rivers is absolutely not a slam dunk Hall of Famer. He played in an era when the numbers went absolutely out of sight and he never won an MVP, never won a Super Bowl, never played in a Super Bowl. So I'm sure there are going to be some people who rightfully so hold that against him when you consider Hall of Fame. But I consider him to be one of the most competitive and quite honestly, one of the most fun football players I've ever covered. I've covered the league for 37 years. Anytime I knew that I was going to be able to spend some time with Rivers, it was going to be a good day. He's so effervescent, so excited. He is the guy that you see on the field. That's who he is. And I think it is so cool, the fact that if you ask him, 
you know, the, th the, the thrills and the, and the, the highlights of his career. Cause I've asked him this question before. And one of the things he points out is, well, you know, it's pretty memorable to me. I played, uh, you know, in a playoff game in an AFC championship game at new England without an ACL, you know, the previous year he tore his ACL and, uh, and, and so those are the kind of things, because he's such a competitive person, you know, if the, if the Chargers go deep into the playoffs and he's not there, you know, when he was on the Chargers, I mean, he would say, okay, here, cut off two of my fingers. I, 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 I got to play in this game, you know, because that's just the way he was. Two things I think are so fantastic. When he announced his retirement, you know who announced it? the guy who covers the San Diego Padres for the San Diego Union Tribune. Kevin Acey was the beat guy who covered Rivers for much of his NFL career in San Diego for the Union Tribune. And they developed a relationship. And so Kevin Acey left, I don't know, maybe three years ago, before the Chargers left San Diego, he went to cover uh, the Padres. But he remained tight with, with Rivers. And so... It was so great that Philip Rivers gave Kevin Acey the scoop <laughs> and that when you found out about this news, it was a story from Kevin Acey. I guarantee you, if you read my column next Monday, Kevin Acey's lead to his story on the retirement of Philip Rivers was, it will be in my column. I guarantee you. You know the first sentence of his column? The time has come. Dad gummit. And that, of course, that's perfect. It's absolutely perfect because, as most people will know, that, that Philip Rivers, you'll never, ever find video, audio, anything with him swearing on a football field. He just never did it. And I remember last year, or was it two years ago, um, when I went to Chargers training camp, I recorded him for my podcast and we did it with a little crowd around him and got some questions and everything. And, and I asked him that day, you know, what, why, why is it so bad for you to swear? But he's just an incredibly religious person. I, and this is total irony. I know it is, but on the day that the second uh, Roman Catholic uh, man was inaugurated as president of the United States, the second Roman Catholic president, um, the most Roman Catholic quarterback I have ever met, retired. They both happened within hours of each other. Just kind of a cool thing. But the one other thing <clears throat> I just think is so fantastic. I absolutely love it. You know, he is going to, what he's going to do is he is going to coach St. Michael Catholic High School in Fairhope, Alabama. He made an agreement with the school last spring that whenever he did retire, the following season, he would be the head coach of the football team. And I can tell you from having talked to Rivers about this a number of times over the years, he is ecstatic to go coach high school football. He wants to coach his kids. As everybody knows, he's got nine kids. Uh, and, uh, uh, the boys love football as most sons of NFL quarterbacks do. And, um, uh, I just think it's a, 
he's going to have a great life. You know, his, you're not going to be wondering of, geez, how's he going to adjust to retirement? He's, he's thrilled that he's going to do something in retirement that he might actually like better than playing the game. So anyway, that, that's what I think about Philip Rivers. Love the guy. Um, and if I had a vote today, right now, this moment, times change, things change, I would vote for him for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I think he's done enough to get in. Now, let's talk about the games this weekend. Um, the, it's, it's sort of interesting when you think about the games as they are, as they are slotted. You know, the, the, the Titanic matchup of quarterbacks, Rodgers versus Brady, is the prelim, you know, because, hey, look, the NFL schedules these games in advance and they switch them off each year so that Fox and CBS in this television package, one of them, the late game, theoretically, would most often get the higher ratings. Um, so this year, it's Fox's turn to go first. CBS goes second with Buffalo, Kansas City. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the Green Bay, Tampa Bay game. <clears throat> the only poor game that Aaron Rodgers played all season uh, was in Tampa in midseason when uh, that was the, the only game that the Packers were awful all season. Uh, and Rodgers was awful. He threw an early pick six that basically turned the tide of the game and it just washed over Aaron Rodgers and he was, he was terrible. And I think Rodgers knows and feels that he, he has it in his mind that that can never happen again. Not only this week, but ever a game that bad for him. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I like Green Bay, not because I don't like Tampa, but because as I watch Green Bay right now, um, the play calling and the con con connectivity between Matt LaFleur, the second-year head coach, who, by the way, is 28-7 and seven in his two seasons, and Aaron Rodgers is just perfect. And it just reminds me of... When you see Aaron Rodgers play right now, he smiled more in the uh, divisional playoff game last weekend. Uh, he smiled more in that game <clears throat> than I have seen him uh, smile in any game in his life. And I bet he smiled more in that game than he did in his last, uh, last two or three years, probably under Mike McCarthy. And it's not to say he doesn't like Mike McCarthy. I just think he's having more fun playing football right now uh, than he has had in a long, long time. You can just see it in him. He's happy. Um, all of us were screaming for him to go get better receivers in the offseason. And while we did that, I'm sure he felt that way. Honestly, I think he felt that way. He wanted better receivers too. But that is not what he focused on. What he focused on is making Alan Lazard, for instance, great. And Alan Lazard has become a good to very good NFL receiver, had a huge touchdown catch after dropping one um, against the Rams the other day. And I just, I like right now, I really like the way the Packers are playing and they're, the multitude of the ways that, uh, that they can attack you on offense. And I would have thought a month ago if you'd said, hey, Green Bay and Tampa is going to meet in the, in the, are going to meet in the playoffs. I would have said, boy, I love Tampa Bay's defense. Look at that last game. And, and they, may, they may play as great in that game as they did. Uh, <clears throat> they may play as great 
in this game uh, this weekend as they did in that one. But I just think Rodgers is too smart to let another game like that happen. Give me uh, the Packers narrowly. And let's go to the other game, Kansas City hosting Buffalo. Look, as you listen to this, you're going to know whether Patrick Mahomes is definitely playing. But he practiced on Wednesday. As I record this, the original designation from the Kansas City Chiefs was that he was a full participant in practice. Uh, and uh, that, uh, and then I guess an hour or so later, they said, no, he was limited participant in practice. So uh, whatever it was, he practiced on the first day of the practice week before the championship game. And look, I don't know anything. I have zero inside information. But if you practice on the Wednesday before uh, a game, if you practice some, if you practice any, um, given what we know after that game, as I wrote in my column this week, that uh, Patrick Mahomes, when the game ended, he had the presence of mind to not only tweet out anything is possible with, uh, you know, sort of a gif of Kevin Garnett screaming that after um, the Celtics won the championship, I think it was 13 years ago. Um, he, he, when Henny came into the locker room after the game, as I wrote my column this week, he showed him this video and this tweet. He was kind of proud of himself and Henny was really touched by it. It was a cool moment. So, you know, you know that Patrick Mahomes was not sitting in some dark room somewhere, uh, head in hand saying, Oh my God, my head's killing me now. So, all that is anecdotal. I don't know for sure whether he's going to play. My gut feeling says he will play, but you'll know more when you're listening to this <clears throat> than I know right now. Um, and the fact that he will play, though, if, if he does play, does not necessarily mean that, that they're out of the woods because Josh Allen is playing and he's going to be totally healthy. Patrick Mahomes is playing and there's something wrong with his foot. As you saw in that game, he got his foot kind of crushed. He was limping as he played in that game. So again, will Mahomes have the mobility that he normally has? Will Jerry Hughes, will Matt Milano, will some of the guys on that front seven really be able to get to Mahomes the way that, uh, that the uh, Buffalo Bills just seemed to haunt Lamar Jackson in that playoff game last weekend? Um, that's why I think this is going to be a great game. It will not surprise me at all if Buffalo wins the game. I'm picking Kansas City. I like the depth of weaponry they have a little bit more, even though how do you not love, you know, the 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 duo of, and really the, the triple threat of uh, Stephon Diggs, Cole Beasley, and John Brown. I mean, uh, and the, uh, the rookie kid who they have, whose name escapes me. Um, but you know, they have, the Bills have a really good, you know, sort of trio quad threat of weapons. I don't really like the Bills running game. Um, I like Kansas City's running game a little bit more. And I like, uh, you know, the speed that they have at receiver. Uh, McCole Hardman really gives them a, such a different direct dimension. Uh, Hardman, Tyreek Hill, and right now the best tight end in football. Um, in uh, in Travis Kelsey. So I like Kansas City narrowly, three points, five points. But anyway, 
what's what would be the difference in that? They've won their last seven games by six points or less. Um, so it's going to be a close game. Uh, and and I, I like Kansas City. So I like the same Super Bowl as we saw in the L.A. Coliseum. We, maybe not we, uh, 54 years ago when the Kansas City Chiefs uh, and the Green Bay Packers played. And um, I think it would be really, really cool to have a rematch. But anyway, we'll see what happens. That's my pick. Um, before I gab uh, and put you all to sleep, I'm going to now go and lead to my conversation with the Atlanta Falcons coach, Arthur Smith, who um, I think you'll tell by the conversation. I think he's going to do a really good job in Atlanta. Here's Arthur Smith. Back on the podcast. So happy to be joined today by uh, Arthur Smith, the new head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, one of the new crop of coaches around the NFL and and really what's so interesting to watch now is how young the new head coaches are. And and I Arthur, I had a note in my column the other day that the four coaches now in LA and New York are all between 34 and 41 years old. And and so I as you look at the league and as you see a lot of teams going young and looking younger. You think it's a coincidence or you think it's a trend? Uh, you know, I think like a lot of things, I think there is a little bit of a trend. It just seems to happen that way. You know, uh, obviously the Rams have had great success with Sean. And so then it could kind of open the door where I don't know it's been done before. I mean, there's you know, certainly Lane Kiffin was hired uh, being younger too, but there's certainly a trend. Sean's had a lot of success in LA. And then, you know, off that, you know, other guys were hired. I think it opened the door for people when they're head coaching searches to, to look at some younger candidates. So you get, you get named to, to coach the Falcons at 38. And I wonder when you look at your bio, it's so diverse and so varied, even though it's not very long, 13 years, I think 13 years ago, I think, right. You, um, you know, you were, uh, in Washington. Correct. And I wonder, as you look back right now on your career in the NFL, are there a couple of seminal moments that you think have brought you to this moment today, coaching the Atlanta Falcons? Well, certainly. I mean, I think one was my experience in Washington. Um, that 2007 season was, was like no other. I mean, there was a lot of things that happened you know, we dealt with the death of Sean Taylor. Joe Gibbs stepped down at the end of that season. Um, there was a lot of things that went on that season. And the next year we had the transition with Jim Zorn. And then when I left, you know, going back to college football was eye-opening. You know, just going from – I had obviously never been in the NFL. I in a, a GA in college. And we had some great coaches in Washington. And went back to college football. I was like, I got to get back in the NFL. And so I'd say when Mike Munchak – and Jerry Gray brought me to Tennessee. That was a huge moment. And then obviously I was fortunate enough to stay. And then really when Mike Malarkey promoted me to tight end coach, that would be one. And then Mike Vrabel giving me a shot to promote me as offensive coordinator. When you got the job as offensive coordinator, I know that there's a lot of people who really didn't know you well. But I want to read something from one of my columns this year when I wrote uh, a game 
that you coach this year that I thought was just really, in my opinion, sort of who you are. And I want to talk to you about this after I finish reading it. It's from week 12 of this year. Tennessee is playing Indianapolis. 22 seconds left in the first half. You're up 21 to 14. So so I'll just read this. Tennessee ball at the Indy one-yard line. To this point, Derrick Henry had been a steamroller. 17 carries, 140 yards, three touchdowns. So, of course, he's getting the ball to finish off this masterpiece of a half. But at the snap, Ryan Tannehill put the ball into Henry's gut in a perfect play-action fake, then took it out, and Henry charged to the goal line over left tackle. Six Colts went with him. Six. And there's never been an easier touchdown than the one Ryan Tannehill jogged in to score. And I recall the, a story that John Robinson told me, the general manager of the Titans at training camp, uh, about Arthur Smith. He zigs when the defense zags. So I want you to just look at that play in particular and maybe your thought process about why you do something like that. It seems very obvious after it happens, but explain your thought process right there. Well, I mean, just really, it was practical. We had gotten down there. Uh, Corey Davis, we we had gone for it, and, and Corey had caught the ball down there. We got down there. So in the, that situation, we're on the one. You know, I called it what I thought gave us the, the best chance, you know. So if we had gotten stuffed, I felt good about us being able to get back on the ball and that personnel. So there was a lot of thought into it. Okay, here, this play gives us at least three options, which it did. And then secondarily, worst case scenario, we get stopped we can get right back on the ball without being able to have another shot at the end zone. So there was a lot that goes into it, but those are things, you know, you, you build through the spring and, and, and you're in camp and in conversation during the week. And, and that was such a good relationship I had with Ryan. Like when we go on Fridays we would talk about situations like that. So it was, it was a pretty easy play call and very confident in the decision-making of Ryan Tannehill and, and they made it work. Play calling in general it's obviously a cat and mouse game, but I think so many guys in the NFL right now are doing such a good job. I have no idea if this play, if you saw this play over the weekend, it's Green Bay against the Rams and uh, Green Bay, uh, I think is at their own 42 yard line and it's second and six. And Matt LaFleur comes out with a seven-man offensive line. But the weird part of it, Arthur, is that he put both tight ends tight next to the left tackle. So in other words, he had four linemen to the left, a center, two linemen to the right, and then he had uh, Devontae Adams split right, and he had Alan Lazard split left, and he had uh, he had a back in the backfield, and here was Aaron Rodgers taking the snap and putting the ball right in Aaron Jones's gut, where it just you know when you have a seven man line, what else are you going to do, <laughs> you know? And it just seems so obvious. And when he puts the gut, he he physically puts the ball in his gut and then takes it out. It was borderline RPO, you know, but 
he takes the ball out and the cornerback for the Rams across from Alan Lazard, who was bracketed by the safety in the corner. The corner takes an almost imperceptible jab step toward the line when he sees the play action. And then Lazard just flies out there and gets a step on the safety and like three steps on the corner. And I'm not saying it was an easy touchdown pass, but even though he was double covered, it it was almost like he wasn't covered because he had beaten both guys. And I just thought to myself, when I watched the Packers play, there's about 10 plays a game where I said, that's a ridiculous call. I never would see that coming. And I said, I handed to Matt LaFleur and to Aaron Rodgers for, as John Robinson said, zigging when the defense zags. Tell me if you can, what do you think right now is happening with play calling? Is it any different? Is football the same as it always has been? Or are guys like you, like Matt LaFleur, maybe taking it to the next level? Oh, I wouldn't call it taking it to the next level. I just think there's a natural evolution. I mean, certainly up front, it hasn't changed. I mean, you know, that's core with inside alignment. I know some of the rules have changed and maybe taking some of the, the old school shots, you know, things that would happen inside a tackle box have been taken out of the game, but still up front in terms of, you know, attitude and, and physicality, that hasn't changed. Now on the outside, I think you're seeing a lot more motions. You know, there's a, there's a game of cat and mouse with the defenses. And, and it, so that's a trend you're seeing. And Matt's done a terrific job, I mean, with, with Aaron Rodgers. I think a lot of things that's, that's happened where Matt's done a really nice job from what he did, his background, coming to Tennessee, and then went going to Green Bay. Like, he, he's naturally evolved to that personnel there. Similar to what we'll do here in Atlanta. Um, you know, I just think it's, it's just the way the game, you know, in college has been more spread out. You know, you're seeing a ton of fly motions. I mean, L.A. was doing that a couple of years ago. Defenses have reacted to that and, and adapted. Um, and now you're seeing a lot more run alerts, things like that, that happen at the line of scrimmage. And when you have a veteran quarterback like Aaron and some of the stuff we did with Ryan, it, it gives you a lot more flexibility as a play caller, where it's not just, hey, this is the call. We're running this hell or high water. There's, there's options at the line of scrimmage. So I think you're th- seeing a lot of that too. Yeah, I, I, I find the game to be so much fun to watch. I could – I wish I, I wish the Chiefs games were six quarters long, you know, because it's so much fun to watch some of the motions they put McCole Hardman and Tyreek Hill in are just like they're crazy. They're mm-hmm. like last week, McCole Hardman did a semicircle around the backfield, you know, behind Mahomes. And you say, what in the world is he doing? And you know what? Nothing. It's just, it's just, you got to watch this guy because he's so fast and now we're going to distract you. And I mean, is that a lot of that when you have somebody, you know, when you have the weaponry sort of like Kansas city has, you really want to use some of it as simply camouflage. Absolutely. A lot of it's just distraction from what's really going on and guys have gotten creative and, Obviously, Andy Reid's done it for a long time, and 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 you got to give Andy Reid credit. Like he he's not afraid to try anything, and you know even the, the play he had the other night situationally a fourth and one, you know he called what he called to, to win the game, and a lot of people don't have as much courage as he does in those situations. But obviously, Andy's I don't know Andy, but just watching from afar, I was very confident in in making that call. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because <laughs> the charcoal mess great because why would i put that on my face when i could drop it in my sink this is what i get for multitasking Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky <clears throat> hello hey janice i am so sorry i thought i was on mute <laughs> no we don't need to reschedule i'll just stay off camera oh yeah that happens so start clean with clorox use clorox products as directed With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. You know what I thought was great about that? And I talked to Chad Henney after the game. I thought what was really great is that on Saturday night, one of the things that the offensive coordinator and Eric Bieniemy and the offensive staff do with Andy and the quarterbacks, they get together and they, they go over, and this is Henny told me this, they go over late game, uh, you know, sort of desperate plays, mm-hmm. you know, fourth and one, fourth and five, fourth and 10 you know, or fourth and long, you know, what do we want to call here? Let's pick it out now so that we're not scrambling as the uh, play clock is, is running down. So they picked out this play that basically is Tyreek Hill just, you know, taking a jab step inside and then running parallel to the ground, to, to, to the line of scrimmage and just getting the ball and they gamble that he can make a yard and he ended up making five. But Henny said that, that that they all said, okay, we agree. We agree. So I said, but once you get into that situation, you know, aren't you a little concerned? They may not call it. He goes, no, I, you know, Andy does what he said he's going to do. And Andy basically confirmed with all his guys, Hey, we okay with this. Yeah, let's do it. So once they do that, you know, it's almost one of these things, Arthur, if Andy says we're pulling back on it, we're not doing it. It's one of those things everybody said, hey, you don't really believe in your guys. You know, if we were going to do this Saturday night now, just because the backup quarterback is in there, then you don't really believe in your backup quarterback. And so I don't know. You know, I do think I'm I'm watching like everybody else and I'm listening to Tony Romo scream at the at the at the field. What are you doing? (laughs) I mean, it was uh, but that that's the kind of do you watch? A lot of other coaches, like, do you watch Kansas City film? Do you watch what Andy Reid does? No, more so in the uh, off season. You know, it, it, yeah. the film is – that's another thing that's happening where, you know, I don't know – you know, in the past, you just think about that, how much more access we have to, to film and highlights that just – that wasn't the case 20 years ago, just trying to get the film. Like, the video directors, the way the process is so sped up now with modern technology – and the way things are broken down, you can pull plays easier. I think people have more access and they have people in their building that can pull plays like that. I think that's pretty common around the league. And that's really because of the way that modern technology has gone, where you can download all the film, you're getting the film quicker, you're not doing the old tape exchange. Um, 
there's so much data input you can go in there and search. Uh, so you do see more. Again, I, I'm talking like I've been doing. I'm just talking with the old coaches. I've got to work with a lot of older coaches in Washington, and, and obviously got to work with Dick LeBeau and guys that have been doing it for half a century. Uh, so just that, that's one thing I think that's happening where you see a lot of that game of art. Or somebody did something that worked, and then people put their their spin on it. No different than Chicago. Try that trick play, and then you come back and you see New Orleans use it the next week and score. You know, that's just it's just it's just funny. I mean, I know they it's the film access, and obviously they just played that opponent. That happens a lot. But uh, you got to love Andy Reid's conviction, and I think it's empowering to those players. I'm going to ask you one other thing about a little bit about the past. And I'm going to ask you about three people in your career, and maybe you tell me what you take from them into this job. Joe Gibbs. Yeah, I think it was Joe's uh, – you know, cool and command under, you know, under stress, under pressure, you know, certainly I don't know what Joe was feeling inside, but Joe never showed panic. He dealt with everything that came his way. And, and he's been unbelievable really since I've stopped working for him. Now, you know, we, we communicate, but just his, his, I just say his demeanor and in handling everything. Again, I don't know how he felt inside, but to the team, he never projected any kind of panic. Uh, and although it's clear that you, you were not necessarily, um, you, you know, you're not working with him every day, obviously, uh, but you were on the staff with Dick LeBeau in Tennessee for three years, if I'm not mistaken. I just want to know, even though he's on the other side of the ball, what do you take from Dick LeBeau? He just had a very practical sense of what he was doing. You know, a lot of it just in the – he was great – at simplifying the game, you know, his experience, he was another guy, like maybe that's a secret to life. He never seemed like he was in a hurry. My favorite the description I give you of a bow when he walked in, you know, if the meeting was, you know, started, say it started at 730, he was walking in cool as, as anybody right on time. He never was in a panic either when he called the plays. And then a lot of times I'd ask him why he called something. It was really just kind of matter of fact. He's like, well, and we couldn't hold up in the back end, so I sent the I sent the corner cap. I said, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It wasn't something like, hey, this is the perfect pressure. The time is the reason he called pressure was as simple as that. And a lot of guys that get into the you know the analytics or, hey, it says this. You know, we're in third and seven. Your percentages, you know, Lebeau was it was pretty practical. So there was a, a, the practicality to what he did. I would take from him. Mike Vrabel. Yeah, Vrabel. Uh, like, he was probably the, the best I've seen. It, it, you know, he's a very uh, – what I always liked about Raves is our discussions and game plans, and he's a free thinker like I, like I am, a uh, very creative guy. But the best thing Braves did is just talking about the day-to-day -day holding guys accountable and the way he did it. Uh, you know, he wasn't budget, and I, and I respected the hell out of that. When you were interviewing for this job – um, and you're sitting there, there's, I'm assuming, Arthur Blank, Rich McKay, the team president, both been in the game for a long time. Was there a time during your interview that you really felt that was important for you? I mean, was there a moment when you look back on it that you really felt really helped you get the job? There was number one moment in that. I felt pretty good about it. You know, there was a it was a thorough process, and uh, 
when I when they brought me to Atlanta and you know we we met a second time and then being in the room with them you know that 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 to me that that helped you know you could you could kind of feel the what kind of people they were and you know pretty direct in what they asked me but there was never one moment where I felt all right hey I got this job I, I felt good about it because it was the way the flow of the interview went and I thought we we shared the same values and uh but it wasn't until I got that call you know I just one of those things that, you know you're hoping to get it and and thankfully, he called me that Thursday night, you know, and we talked. What goes through your mind when you're offered a head coaching job in the NFL? Yeah, a lot. You know, you, you you think about it. You know, it's like a lot of things you, you work for, you, you dream about, and then the moment comes and you're like, holy crap. Like, I just got offered a, a head job in, in the NFL. So uh, it, took a, it took a minute or two to sink in, but uh, it was a pretty cool feeling. What do you think of your team? How much have you analyzed it? How long does Matt Ryan have, do you think? Are you bullish on Matt Ryan's future? Just give me a thought or two about your team. Yeah, there, there's just so much to dive in. You know, it's just hard. We come here because Terry and I will sit down and, you know, we, we finish out. Terry Fontenot, the new general. Yeah, Terry Fontenot, Terry Fontenot and I will sit down. You know, he's obviously when he fills out his staff and I fill out my staff and it's going to be a collaborative effort and we got to dive in there and to give a thing. Here's the thing is I wouldn't count against Matt Ryan. History shows has shown what Matt Ryan's done in his career. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to working with Matt. Uh, I've got so much respect for him, but it'd be hard for me to put a number on it right now. I mean, we got to, you know, I haven't gone through one meeting or one practice with him, but, but I am fired up to be, to work with him. I know what he's about and uh, studied him and studied his history. Do you know Terry Fontenot? We kind of know each other. I didn't know him before this. Uh, knew a lot of people that knew him that I respect. And, you know, just like we started to talk on the phone and and just really have some really good conversations about who, who we are, what we believe in. And, uh, you know, like like any anybody, you're, you're going to have some disagreements. But I know where Terry's coming from and I hope he'll know where I'm coming from. And it's going to be a great partnership. Uh, I want to close by asking you a little bit about something that is sort of near and dear to you personally, and that is reading. Mm -hmm. um, in today's day and age, there aren't a lot of people who, especially during a season, will sit down and read and will uh, will actually sort of use some reading time to get away from it all. How much do you read and what do you like to read? Well, I like to read all kinds of things. You know, during the season, it's different. Um, I love history. You know, I get I get fixated on, you know, maybe a theme, you know, two two summers ago, I read a lot on the Vietnam War, um, you know, and, and obviously my dad was a Marine, served two tours there. And we never talked about it, but now he's gotten older, you know, reading, I've asked him questions and, my, and he's like a history book. I could sit there and listen to him tell stories, whether, you know, military history um, and that, that stuff fast. Just, there's lessons learned, you know, there's lessons learned, you know, studying the Korean War. Um, and not that we, you know, we're in the military, but there's certain things and lessons about leadership and and command under under pressure. And there's real life and death. But there's a lot of you know, I just like to he, you know, he put instilled in me to study history. Um, and then when I do read fiction, I probably read, you know, CIA or crime fiction. I think that's a good distraction, especially in the season. You know, your mind is just racing 24 seven on everything that's going on. And if I can get a 10 minutes in at night, it just helps. I think it helps. And I think it helps my creativity. 
you know, during the week. It's just something different where you're just not focused on just football. That's just how my mind works. You know, we'll 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 get out on this. You mentioned your dad, obviously, for those who don't know, Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. And there's this impression that occasionally is said about you that, eh, you know, if you fail, that's OK. You've got the family business to fall back on. And I, I've always thought I've always thought, you know, why should just because a guy's dad has been extremely successful? Why should one of his offspring have to do that job or want to do that job? And and I and getting to know you a little bit, I think your life without football, you'd figure out something to do and you'd be okay. But your life without football would not be anywhere near the life you would really want to live. Yeah, it would be completely different. Um, you know, it's you know, it's funny, you know, people just assume. I always get a kick out of it too, you know, like, trust me, I would not think um, I'd be some great businessman just because of who my dad was. It always makes me laugh when people are going to these valuations, these dumb stereotypes, like, oh, he's a coach's kid, Jim Rat, or whatever they say, you know, this guy's from this school or this high school and everybody's so different. You know, you, you kind of strip away somebody's individualism and, uh, and, it, and it's ironic because that's not true. I mean, some of the, you know, the, the laziest guys I've ever been around as a, as a player or coach, you know, came from these, you know, big time programs or they came from these certain really rough areas and vice versa. You know, I mean, sometimes the stereotype does fit, as we all know, but it just kind of gave me a chip on my shoulder to go prove prove myself. Um, and, and that's the same way I look at, at people. I, you know, I look at everybody, you know, give them a chance and let me see who, what you're really about. Instead of just looking at your bio and say, oh, I know what kind of guy this is. I think that's really uh kind of stunts people's uh, growth. I think when you do that and you, you end up not giving people the benefit of the doubt. I think the part about you that would be, would probably be frustrating if I were you is that, ah, you know, his family's got all this money. He doesn't really have to do this and all that. I mean, I don't know. My, my dad was an iron worker. And so obviously I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to do that. Let's just say that. And I wasn't, you know, our family didn't didn't have a lot of money. But anyway, my point is that, you know, whatever your dad does, maybe you'd lean to doing that. But there's no real reason for you absolutely to want to do that, no matter how successful he's been. And uh, I think you're right. I think people just assume for a while uh, both about you and about a lot of people that, uh, you know, they would know you based on what your dad did. And that, that clearly, I mean, I wonder, you know, I, I really wonder sometimes what your dad thinks about, man, my, my kid is a big time football coach. How did that happen? <laughs> no, I think he's, uh, him and my mom are both enormously proud of all my brothers and sisters. I get, you know, it's funny too, about the, you know, when they say family business, it's a huge publicly traded you know, company, you know, it's not like you just, you know, I've got a brother and sister that, that work for FedEx and they've worked in the different departments and they do a great job, but it's not all of a sudden like you can just pick like, Hey, Oh yeah. You're, you know, you're Fred Smith's kid. You're, you're, you're going to sit at the board of directors tomorrow. That's just not how it works in a huge publicly traded company. That's not how my dad is. Uh, if you, if you ever yeah. met him, he's, he's an old Marine at heart. And uh, you got my parents, both my parents, a lot of credit, you know, cause there are, I mean, that's, and you can see where those stereotypes come from, but it's just, as you go around in life and you realize, you know, how different and how 
humble my dad was. And he, like, uh, I think there's some great lessons. Like he's never been impressed with himself. He understands any organization and how it works. It, it, you know, it, it takes everybody. And I think those are lessons he instilled in us. And we watched him do it. I mean, he's been the greatest role model, model in that regard. Arthur Smith, wish you well with the Atlanta Falcons. You got a great, great opportunity there. I really am, a, even though I don't know him, I'm a fan of, uh, of Terry Fontenot's personnel uh, capabilities and his record in New Orleans. I think you got a really good shot there in Atlanta. Thank you, Peter. And now my conversation with Jared Bell, USA Today. Back on the podcast, happy to be joined by Jared Bell of USA Today today. Uh, we have many topics to discuss, Jared, and we've got 17 minutes, so we're just going to blare in. By the way, happy Inauguration Day. I know. it's It's been a long time coming. I don't know if I've ever been um, as excited about Inauguration Day, and I thought about that. I mean, obviously, was excited when Barack Obama became president, but... yeah. Inauguration was was kind of anticlimactic after the election that you know Obama won you know back yeah. in, when when he was first elected. But this was just um, so special and it was so striking. I don't think anybody could have watched the events without thinking about what happened two weeks exactly ago, yeah at the at that same site. So yeah yeah very riveting and. So many parts of it were so interesting to me. Like Amanda Gorman, who I never heard of until this morning. You know, I mean, she she basically hit a grand slam. And can you imagine being that poised at age 22? Man. Uh, not me. Okay. So it's good <laughs> to see that someone could could pull it off, but you're right. Um, she was so powerful, she hit the right tone, the right messages. Um, she used great analogies. I loved it too. I mean, I thought yeah. she, she was yeah, wonderful. She was really good. Okay. We need more of her going forward, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need more of her. Okay, so Jared, um, I'm going to let everybody know that um, you and I are two of the 48 uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame voters. And uh, so today is... Wednesday, as we record this, it's two weeks before Super Bowl week. And basically, normally every year, we would always have the Hall of Fame voting uh, on the Saturday before the Super Bowl. But because so many voters and so many people are not going to the Super Bowl this year, the Hall of Fame decided to have the vote early. We had the vote yesterday, eight hour and 43 minute meeting. And uh, you know, we're, we, first of all, we don't know who got in anyway. We, we're not told the vote. We're not going to be told the vote. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of the things that happened during the meeting. And, and, and I should clarify something. We truly do not know who made the Hall of Fame. And we don't know until the Hall of Fame releases it or until the people who made it, sometimes they leak right before the meeting or whatever. So, but there were a few interesting things to me about the meeting. And I want to ask you about three of them specifically. Mm -hmm. Number one, I thought it was, uh, I thought there were so many really interesting presentations during the course of the meeting. But the one that really kind of hit me 
was Clay Matthews, the old Cleveland linebacker. And you suddenly realize this is the first time he has ever had his case heard. And yet it's the last time if he didn't get in this year, then he goes into this, what we call the seniors pool. There are anywhere from between about 80 to 150 logical good cases of old timers who aren't in the hall of fame. So this is the only time that Clay Matthews, because his time since he's retired um, has elapsed the, the, the time that he could be considered as a modern era candidate. So this is going to be the only time he's had his case heard. And that really started to hit me yesterday when I listened to what his, what a great case it was for him. I just wanted to know what you thought of his candidacy and what you think of when you think, God, this is the last time he's in the only time really his case is ever going to be heard in this room. Yeah, Peter, it, it's a, it's a trip to, to use a word, a term. And it reminds me of Everson Walls a couple years yeah. ago who had gone all of these years, he gets to the last year of his eligibility as a modern era candidate. And, and then we did not elect him for the hall of fame. And now he's in that abyss, <laughs> the seniors pool. Um, and so I don't know if that's going to happen with Clay Matthews or not, but I think there are, there are always these cases. Uh, Carl Banks is another one who we yeah. never had in the room. And I don't know his exact, timeline right now but I know it's getting short and he was a great player in his own right the thing that really kind of hits me when I think about this is like why did it take so long for this guy to get into the room and you know you are an at-large selector I've been an at-large selector until this year when I was um, enlisted to be the Washington presenter we didn't have any Washington players so I didn't have to present anybody's case yesterday but the people who um, pretty much have it in their domain to present the cases from certain teams. I think that's where you have to start. Now, um, so for Clay Matthews not to get to the room, not to really have a push until now. And like I said, I don't know if he got in or not because it was a compelling case. And, um, you know, he definitely merits consideration. But it's, it's going to be a tough deal just because when you look at the slate in front of you and you say, okay, is this guy a Hall of Famer or not? Uh, obviously, Peyton Manning, I don't think I'm letting anything out there, right? Um, so you, you'll have cases like that. And we, you know, that was another part of the, the, the discussion, Peter, as you know, it's like, what do you do with first ballot guys versus guys who are further along on the timeline? And that's always a difficult um, dilemma to, to, to consider. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, one of the other things I thought was interesting, I think, you know, we have in the last two years, I think we've made up, uh, we and plus the Centennial Committee, uh, <laughs> basically there's a lot of people who've gotten in in the last two years because yeah. the Centennial Committee also, you know, elected a crop. And I... I really think that we've done a pretty good job in addressing the backlog of safeties. And I know it's not necessarily a sexy position, but man, I think both John Lynch and Leroy Butler have compelling cases. And, and for, for those who don't know the exact rules of this, basically we have 15 
modern era finalists, 15. And we can only put five in. So I, I think it's probably doubtful that both Lynch and Butler would get in and maybe none of them get in. But I think that is a very interesting kind of, I, I don't want to call it competition, but it's interesting because I think both of those guys have excellent cases for the hall. Oh, no doubt about it. And you look at, like, I know John Lynch, how many Pro Bowls did he have? He's in two rings of honor for the Bucks and for the Broncos. And so, yes, he's been at the doorstep for multiple years. I want to say it's eight years. that he's Eight been years, yeah. And so that tells you that he's right there. But then what happens, as I just mentioned a minute ago, first ballot guys come in and you say, okay, well, I know Peyton Manning is going to get in. And that takes away one of those five spots. Now, rightfully so for the right reason, but um, it doesn't make it any easier for John Lynch. The one thing that I hate about this process is the fact that guys have to sometimes wait and it can be so excruciating to see if they get in or not. And ultimately, I think someone did a study a few years ago and they said like 90% or more of the players who become finalists ultimately get in. But sometimes that get it, that may take 10 years. I mean, Lynn Swan right. is a classic case. I remember talking to Jerome Bettis. Um, you know, we were working at ESPN at the time and it was like a couple years and three years and four years trying to get in. And, and I'm just saying, hey, just, you know, because it's and it's so so it's excruciating for these guys personally because there's nothing else they can do. They, right. they can't make another tackle. They can't, <laughs> can't you know throw another pass, and so and it's out of their hands. And so from a human uh, standpoint, that's the real difficult part of this. And you know, for John Lynch and for Leroy Butler, whose case I think has really escalated in the past couple of years, where he's gotten into the room now. Um, yeah, I think those guys are, are very worthy. Just the problem is, is there's only so many spots. I want to, the last thing on the hall I wanted to ask you is, um, so I've done this now, I think almost 30 years. And I know you've been on it for a long time too. 20 something, 20. Yeah. So, so what have you, what have you found in the last few years, especially about the intensity of the people who care and the rancor of people who don't get in and their fan bases. I, 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 I gotta tell you, I fell off my chair this year about whatever it was, two, three weeks ago, when I'm watching TV and I'm saying, that's, that's Tom Flores, isn't it? And I see this ad with Tom Flores Coors Light has put out an ad campaigning for him to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I thought was totally Bush League, personally. And especially for Flores to act, you know, like, oh, I have no idea while I'm not in. Well, you went 14 and 34 in three years coaching the Seattle Seahawks. Maybe we could start there. But be that as it may, be that as it may, what has the pressure been like in the last few years compared to when you first got on? Yeah, it, it's different. And I think it's a reflection of just the interest in the game and how um, it has escalated. I think it's actually good for the Hall of Fame that 
they have the relevance that people do care about it. You know, the worst when it came to fan pressure was the Art Monk situation. And I know you, yeah. Peter, oh, were yeah. right in the middle of it because you came out and publicly said for, for years that you didn't support Monk. And then I think ultimately you did. Yeah, but, at the end, um, I voted for him. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what I don't like, Peter, is for people to campaign for themselves. And so that's where, you know, if, if Coors Light wants to do a commercial, okay. And I guess you can't do a commercial without Tom Flores. But if you're Tom Flores, I don't think you you really want to be involved in that. And that's a turnoff to me. And I, I'm not talking about his case in particular when it comes to self-promoting because we've already voted on him. And, and I think he'll have a good chance to get in just because of the fact that he was forwarded by the, the committee that selected the coaches. And there are other coaches that are going to be in the pipeline uh, in, in coming years, Mike Holmgren being one. You talk about Seattle. Well, Mike Holmgren was su successful in Seattle. Yeah. Um, but And I think that was the drawback with, with Flores. But uh, I just don't like when guys promote themselves. And we had the T.O. situation a couple of years ago, which wasn't surprising because it was T.O., right? You can almost expect that if he didn't get in, which he didn't for a couple of years, that he was going to say something that's consistent with kind of how he's operated. But by and large, and, and I'm not giving him a pass on that at all, but I'm just saying that that wasn't so much of a surprise. But by and large, you know, if you're a Hall of Famer, you don't have to campaign. Right, yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. And one thing that I've actually told some guys, because as voters, and you know it, Peter, you'll hear from people, not only their supporters, but you'll hear from guys you know, individually themselves. Well, what do I need to do to get in and what can I do? And, and it's almost like, you know, just trying to bribe the, the, you know, the, the, the judges. A couple of years ago, a guy who hadn't been in and really wanted to be in texted me and he said, hey, can you tweet, retweet this? There was a story that had been online about this guy's case. Hey, can you retweet this for me? And I wrote back to him and I said, dude, I said, I love you, but you know, you shouldn't be involved like that. You know, you shouldn't be asking voters to retweet stories about you. But yeah, I, I feel, I feel, I feel the exact same way. We've only got a couple of minutes left and I want to hit you with one other thing. Okay. What would you do if you were Houston Texans general manager, Nick Casario or owner Cal McNair, how would you try to solve the Deshaun Watson problem right now? Yeah, it's, it starts with communication, Peter. And so I know that there have been reports that they're going, and I'm sure they will ultimately have some sort of meeting, some sort of face-to-face -face meeting. And I mean, it's a critical thing. When you talk about uh, what we've heard that perhaps they can trade him, um, you know, that's crazy. You know, think about that. It is crazy. Would, would, would the Kansas City Chiefs trade Patrick Mahomes? Would the Ravens trade Lamar Jackson about right now? Um, so you've got to try to, Mend some fences. So, I mean, I think that's really the first big challenge of Nick Casario in terms of, you know, how he's going to operate moving forward. Um, I guess, and think about all the great players who have, you know, left Houston over the past couple of years. Yep. <laughs> DeAndre Hopkins and, and um, uh, Jadeveon Clowney. Right. And we'll see what, what the future is for JJ. You know what I think, Jared, you know what I've come to think of I've come to think about this. I think they almost have to hire Eric Bieniemy because he's the guy who at the start of this process, 
that's the guy because Deshaun, I, I, I don't think Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes are like best friends, but I think it's like a Brady Manning thing. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're in touch a lot. They like each other, uh, you know, and, and, and I think uh, Mahomes is basically convinced Deshaun Watson, if you get this guy, you're going to be the happiest quarterback in the NFL. That's, that's just my gut feeling. Yeah, and, I, and, and it's, it's sad that it's happened to get to this point because you right. may have said the same thing because I said something similar a month ago before all of this drama took place. And so I think that's the fundamental issue when you talk about Deshaun Watson and, you know, Texans, um, you know, upper management in terms of, you know, how how they process this deal. They should have brought in Eric Bienvenue right from the start and, you know, saw whether or not that was going to be a fit. But yeah, I can't disagree with you on that one. So stay tuned, right? Jared Bell, USA Today. Thanks so much for uh, helping me out and doing my podcast this week. A lot of information. It's all good. After nine hours with you yesterday on Zoom, (laughs) what's another few minutes, man? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, thanks a lot. We'll be in touch. Okay, man. Take care. Thanks. My thanks to Arthur Smith and to Jared Bell for their observations, for exchanging thoughts with me, uh, for some very good football conversation in championship week so enjoy the games this weekend i'm going to be back next week with a couple new guests um and hopefully i'll have a surprise or two for you next week i'm working on a couple of things and we'll see how that goes thanks so much for joining me and again sorry for being so late this week have a great weekend everybody Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.